Father, we thank you for this day in which we can share together in fellowship with Jesus Christ. We thank you for the testimony of Teresa and how you've used her to reach certainly one of the neediest lands in the entire world, a country with 1.1 billion people, a fifth of the population of the world, and yet a land that has been so little touched by the gospel. We're grateful for the church that has grown there and for the 70 or 80 million people who do profess faith. And we pray the church will just grow and expand and that the ministry of uh, this organization and others will uh, be able to be effective there. And uh, we just pray you'll bless Teresa as she continues to seek your wisdom and direction as she serves you this year and into the future. Now, Father, bless this time we share together. Guide us in our study of your word in Christ's name. Amen. If you'll turn to Genesis chapter 47, be reading beginning at verse 7. 47.7, Genesis 47.7. Then Joseph brought his father Jacob and presented him to Pharaoh. And Jacob blessed Pharaoh. And Pharaoh said to Jacob, How many years have you lived? So Jacob said to Pharaoh, The years of my sojourning are 130. Few and unpleasant have been the years of my life, for they have, nor have they attained the years that my fathers lived during the days of their sojourning. And Jacob blessed Pharaoh and went out from his presence. So Joseph settled his father and his brothers and gave them a possession in the land of Egypt, in the best of the land, in the land of Ramses, as Pharaoh had ordered. And Joseph provided his father and his brothers and all his father's household with food according to their little ones. Last Sunday, we began looking at this particular section and we saw Joseph had arranged for an audience between Pharaoh and his father Jacob. And I think I mentioned last time that I really believe that although Pharaoh was the great ruler of the land, when he saw Jacob come into his presence, I, I think he rose from his throne in honor of Jacob because he had never seen a man of that antiquity before. And certainly he was the father of this man that had been so important to Pharaoh and to the whole land of Egypt, who in fact had saved the land of Egypt, Joseph. And certainly he had tremendous respect uh, for Joseph's father. And he was very impressed by his obvious great age. I, you know, I think uh, Jacob came in with a long white flowing beard and long white hair, you know, and sort of the Moses figure that we think uh, about. And I, I, I really feel that Jacob looked that way. And when he asked Jacob his age, how old really are you? Jacob's response is very interesting. First of all, we discover it says that the years of my sojourning. He uses the word sojourning here. This statement seems to indicate that Jacob viewed his life as a pilgrimage. That this is not it, folks, that we're just a passing through. And probably I think he had two ideas in mind when he said that. First of all, Although Abraham and Isaac, as well as Jacob, had been promised Canaan, this was the promised land, Canaan, they had not come into possession of any of it, with exception of two small parcels. One, of course, was the uh, field of Ephron, wherein was the cave of Machpelah, where the family burial plot was located. 
and the other was a small plot of land up near Shechem that Jacob had bought when he settled up in that region. Those are the only two pieces of Canaan that actually belonged to them, although the whole land had been promised to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. Although Jacob would spend most of his time in Canaan, we have to remember that his life, his, his ministry, if you want to call it that, uh, got kicked off in Paden Aram. So he was up in what today we call Syria, and he spent over 20 years there. And now he is down in the land of Egypt, and he will spend the remaining years of his life in Egypt. So, you know, Canaan wasn't even the land in which he lived all of his life, even though he lived the bulk of it there. And he was going to be leaving his family in an alien land. When he would die, he would die in Canaan, his family would still be in Canaan, and of course, he had no idea how long they'd be in Canaan, but he was depending upon God's promise, because God had appeared to him, remember we studied that in the previous chapter, God appeared to him and said to him, you're to go down into this land and you will die there, but I will bring your family out and it will be a, an innumerable number of people. I will bring your, your family out as a great nation. And so Jacob was trusting in that that God would bring the family out. He had no idea that it would be over 400 years later. You know, the, these numbers sometimes just don't really mean anything to us until we compare them to something, you know? Uh, 400 years ago, well, that would be, what, 1594? <laughs> they had not even, uh, I mean, they had not even planted the Jamestown colony here in North That's how long ago, 400 years ago is. And it would be all that time before they would leave the land of Egypt. Certainly Jacob didn't know that, and it didn't, he didn't need to know that. I think beyond that, though, there was also the sense on the part of Jacob that life is a pilgrimage, and I think we can all agree with that. Life is a pilgrimage. To us who are true believers in Christ, we have come to a place of understanding that life is a pilgrimage and a great deal of life is unsettling and very wearisome. You know, the news is very wearisome. You know, we just get tired of it all the time. More junk going on and no justice in the land and around the world. And it seems like tragedy after tragedy. And for, you know, if you get lost in it, if you lose your faith in what God says, you can almost think Satan's winning here, you know. Because the all, whole world's going to hell right in front of our eyes, it seems. And yet we know in the Word that that is not true. This is our Father's world. And He has established a plan, and it's in the process of being carried out. But for us as believers, we've seen, we sing the little chorus, This world is not my home, I'm just passing through. And sometimes we think, sing that a little bit tritely, but if we stop to think about it, I mean, those are extremely important words. This world isn't my home. This is not where it's at. We're just on our journey through. Just as Abraham journeyed for a while through Canaan and Isaac and, and Jacob, that was not their ultimate home. And it is not the ultimate home of the believer. Unfortunately, this world is not the home of the unbeliever either. Only in his case, his destiny is not eternal life in heaven. If we will, if you will, let's turn to the 25th chapter of Matthew. Matthew chapter 25 gives us a really good understanding of the ultimate end of this pilgrimage. On your outline, I have 
verses 41 to 46, but I'd like to back up a little bit to, to bring this to a coherent uh, picture to verse 31, Matthew 25, verse 31. Now remember, these are the words of our Lord. This is what Jesus said. This is not invented by some theologian. This is not invented by somebody who wants to go around knocking people and saying, boy, if you don't believe the way I do, you're going to go to hell. Let's, these are the words of Jesus. This is what he said. This is what Christianity is about. It's about what Jesus says. But when the Son of Man, that is, of course, Christ, comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne and all the nations will be gathered before him. This means living and dead. Everyone who's lived throughout time. And he will separate them one from the other as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will put the sheep on his right hand and the goats on his left. Obviously, speaking of the animals figuratively, these are groups of people. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed of my father. Inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you invited me in. Naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. In prison, and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you drink? When did we see you, a stranger, invite you in or naked and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and come to you? And the king will answer and say to them, Truly I say to you, to the extent that you did it to one of these brothers of mine, even the least of them, you did it to me. Then he will also say to those on his left, Depart from me, accursed ones, into the eternal fire which has been prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger, and you did not invite me, and naked, and you did not clothe me, sick and in prison, and you did not visit me. Then they say themselves will also will answer, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not take care of you? Then he will answer them, saying, Truly I say to you, to the extent that you did, you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. And the parallelism is very clear there. The parallelism in verse 46 is eternal punishment is paralleled with eternal life. And, and the Greek word there, which is translated eternal, is a age of unending duration, meaning that it goes on and it goes on and it goes on and it goes on and it goes on. There is no termination to it. Now that's the teaching of our Lord. Men and women through history try to change that. They want to say, well, a good God would never condemn people to an eternal damnation because that's not good. Well, it isn't a matter of that. What was the eternal punishment prepared for? What did this passage say? the devil and his angels. It wasn't prepared for human beings. But human beings who choose to serve the devil and his angels end up where they end up. That's their choice. And it's not what God would have. He said, I am not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. But those who reject repentance and refuse what God has to offer, they've chosen their lot. And it isn't it isn't the church who's invented this. It's not theologians in some ivory tower who've come down with these pronouncements. It's what the Lord says. 
And if we can't believe the words of the Lord, then there's not much we can believe in this life. I'd also like to read, if we could, from the second chapter of Romans, verses 5 through 8. Second chapter of Romans, verses 5 through 8. But because of your stubbornness and unrepentant heart, you're storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath and revelation to the righteous judgment of God, who will render to every man according to his deeds, to those who by perseverance in doing good seek for glory and honor and immortality, eternal life. But to those who are selfishly ambitious and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, wrath and indignation. We see it's a, it's a choice. It's a choice people make. It's not a condition to which God, with great delight, casts anybody. It's a choice that people have made. The choice has been put before them. It's, it's just as Elijah, standing on the top of Mount Carmel, with the prophets of Baal on one side, crying out that Baal might come and, and uh, answer their prayers, and he alone of the prophets of God stood there, and he stood pronounced to the people, he said, choose you this day whom you will serve. Well, that's, those are Joshua's words in, in another account back in Joshua. But it, to effect, he said, why halt ye between two opinions? Same basic idea. Why you stand there, you, you, you know, bail on one side, God on the other, you just, you're on the fence, you don't know which way to go. Why do you stand on the fence for? If Baal's Lord, serve him. If God's Lord, serve him. And then, of course, the great miracle transpired and God demonstrated his might and his power. It's a choice. It's a choice we make. And it has eternal repercussions. And so it was understood, I believe, by Jacob. Not to the extent that we can understand it, certainly, because he didn't have the whole scripture in front of him, didn't have any scripture in front of him. But of what he understood of the character of God, it was, uh, I think, quite clear. I think as Jacob uh, walked through life and, and as Jacob stood there before Pharaoh, certainly the words of his father and of his grandfather echoed in his mind, words that uh, implied that they were pilgrims and that the promise may not be fulfilled in our lifetime, but the promise will come true because true is the one who has made the promise. And the writer of the Hebrews made this very, I think, poignant in the 11th chapter of Hebrews, reading at verse 8, Hebrews 11, verse 8. This, this particular passage is so really insightful of helping us to understand things that we don't really gather just from reading Genesis. As you read Genesis, you don't see behind the scenes as the writer of the Hebrews enables us to. Verse 8, By faith Abraham, when he was called, obeyed by going out to a place which he was to receive for an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going. By faith he lived as an alien in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, dwelling in tents with Isaac and Jacob, fellow heirs of the same promise. For he was looking for the city which has foundations, whose architect and builder is God. By faith, even Sarah received ability to conceive even beyond the proper time of life, since she considered him faithful who had promised. Again, you remember when we studied about Sarah and you read about it in Genesis, it doesn't sound like she believes anything. 
<laughs> I'm going to have a baby right. Huh? But, but here, the writer of the Hebrews helps us to see that deep down inside, she believed God. It seemed, of course, ludicrous to her from the natural perspective. But she believed God. Sometimes in our walk, we don't always um, demonstrate obvious faith. Sometimes in our act of sin, we, we have, uh, it would look from the outside as if we're not people of faith, but down inside, deep inside, if we're truly believers and we've been studying the word and trusting God, there's a deep faith. And it's that deep faith which enables us to employ uh, the first chapter of John, which tells us that if we sin, we have, you know, an advocate with the Father, that we can come before the Father and ask for forgiveness. He grants to us that forgiveness because it's based on faith which exists in the heart. Therefore, also, there was born of one man, and him as good as dead, at that, as many descendants as the stars of the heaven in number and innumerable as the sand which is by the seashore. All these died in faith. Notice, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Sarah, Rebekah, Rachel, Leah, all these died in faith without receiving the promises. They didn't see them as a reality. But having seen them and welcomed them at a distance, God had promised they'd they dwelt in the land for a while. They'd been pilgrims in the land. So they saw what it would be, but they didn't actually possess it. Having confessed that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. <coughs> for those who say such things make it clear that they're seeking a country of their own. Now, it's interesting how the Hebrew writer here understood that some people would ask a question about that. And indeed, if they had been thinking of that country from which they, they went out, in other words, Paden Aram or Mesopotamia, they would have had opportunity to return. So this country they were seeking wasn't the land from which they came. But as it is, they desire a better country, that is, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. And of course, we've read many times, uh, the description of that city at the end of the book of Revelation, a city that comes down out of heaven as a bride, the beautiful New Jerusalem, consciously or unconsciously or subconsciously, whatever term you want to use there, our spirits, if we're true believers in God, our spirits also long for that home. We long for that day when we will be in the presence of God. We look forward to that moment when we'll be translated from this body of death that we drag around with us every day and keeps getting sick and keeps breaking something and, you know, getting ourselves into trouble and something bad comes in from this direction and that direction. And after a while, we get really weary of it all. And we look forward, as they did, to that heavenly city the new Jerusalem, which comes down from God. Sure, this life has its joys and has its pleasures, and, and, and certainly if we're walking with the Lord, we have a deep down contentment, and we're at peace. We have a shalom in our hearts. But, but there still is that, that constant rub because the enemy is at work in this world, and he's creating chaos in this world, and he brings injustice in this world, and tragedy after tragedy. I mean, how many of you 
have experienced tragedies directly and indirectly. And how many of you have family and friends who've gone through terrible tragedies? Everyone in this room. That will end. There will be a day when it is no more. And what I think is really interesting is how David responded to this. In 1 Chronicles chapter 29, we have some words of David. David prayed a great prayer and, and, and made a, a great pronouncement before the people of Israel at the time when the monies were be, being collected for the construction of the temple. Now, David wasn't allowed to construct the temple because he was a man who had shed a lot of blood. So God had chosen his son Solomon, whom he said would be a man of peace to be the constructor of the great temple. But David was allowed to collect all that was needed to build the temple, the money and all the goods and things that would be involved in building the temple. So in 1 Chronicles chapter 29, verse 10, So David blessed the Lord in the sight of all the assembly. And David said, Blessed art thou, O Lord God of Israel, our Father forever and ever, Thine, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty. Indeed, everything that is in the heavens and the earth, thine is the dominion, O Lord. And thou dost exalt thyself as head over all. Both riches and honor come from thee, and thou dost rule over all, and in thy hand is power and might. And it lies in thy hand to make great and to strengthen everyone. Now, therefore, O God, we thank thee and praise thy glorious name. But who am I and who are my people that we should be able to offer as generously as this? For all things come from thee, and from thy hand we have given thee. For we are sojourners before thee and tenants. And as our fathers were, our days on earth are like a shadow and there is no hope, that is, in the flesh, there is no hope. The hope is in God alone. David was a perceptive man. David went through a hard life. Now, David only lived half as long as Jacob. But, but David had a very, very difficult life. And some of the difficulties were the, res were the result of his own folly. But be that true or, or you know, whatever is the cause of the, the problems in our lives, they are nevertheless problems. And they create a very wearisome time at moments in our lives. But we're sojourners. And so we don't have to worry. There will be no flies in heaven either. And, you know, because who is the Lord of the flies, you know? Beelzebub is the Lord of the flies. And uh, he will not be there because he'll be sent to outer, outer darkness. So our, our spirits are like that of David, are like that of Jacob, are like that of Joseph and Isaac and Rebekah and Sarah and Abraham. We're sojourners here. Now, they sojourned a little longer than we will, probably. But nevertheless, we have the same goal, the same hope, the same plan of action, I trust, as they. The psalmist in Psalm 42, in a very, very poignant and oft-repeated psalm says these words, As the deer pants for the water brook, so my soul pants for thee, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come 
and be and appear before God. <laughs> the words of the psalmist, when will it be, O Lord, that I will be able to come and appear before you? My soul thirsts for you as the, you know, as the deer that's been chased laps up the water. So my soul longs for thee. And when will the day come when I'll stand before you? Jacob went on to say that the years of my sojourning are few. Jacob lived 130. We might say, few? He would live to be 147 altogether. And yet, in the whole scheme of things, what's 147 years? Now, what's 147 years in the, in the passage of time? It's but a moment. And he says that my life has been shorter than that of my father's, referring to his ancestors, because his immediate father, Isaac, had lived to be 180. And his grandfather, Abraham, had lived to be 175. And his great-grandfather, Terah, had lived to be 205. Notice 205, 175, 180, 147. Joseph will live to be 110. Notice the precipitous, precipitous drop-off. This is the ongoing outfall of the Great Flood. When the atmosphere changed and the impact of solar radiation began to increase uh, directly, you remember how long Noah lived? Noah lived 950 years. How long did his son Shem live? 600 years. Whoa, you know, 350 years. Difference, that's a big difference. And as you go through the chronology after that, the, the lifespan just keeps shortening. It just keeps shortening. And that will continue. I mean, he's near the end of this shortening, but not completely at the end. Because later the psalmist would say in Psalm 90, as the days of our life, they contain 70 years, or if by reason of strength, 80 years. Now today, we live in a day and we live in a time when due to better nutrition and, and better safety standards and a lot of other things, we are more likely to live to this Psalm 90 standard of 70 to 80. In fact, as you know, the insurance companies will tell you that in America today, the average male lives to be in his early 70s and the average uh, female to her late 70s. So that's still, the average is still in the bracket of Psalm 90, 70 to 80 years of age. Now, some people live beyond that. There are, I forget how many million centenarians in the world or even in the United States. There are a lot of people who live to be 100 or more. That doesn't change the average. <laughs> the average is still the same. And uh, even though the scientists are saying, whoa, you know, someday we're going to be able to push people back up there and, and we think that we can at least get them up to 120. I don't think so. I don't think the Lord will wait that long before he returns. We are living in a, in a time when many of us wouldn't care to live to 120 or 180 or whatever else, you know. Things are going at kind of in a nosedive here so rapidly. I mean, I, I suppose you read the newspaper headlines this morning. Somebody machine gunned the White House. It's getting absurd. It's getting absolutely absurd. You know, a few weeks ago, I tried to crash a plane into it. It's, we live in an insane, in an insane day. But, you know... I was talking with a student in class, I mean, on class in my office on Friday, and he was just concerned about a lot of these uh, things, and he was saying, you know, how bad can it get? And I was reminded of uh, Genesis chapter 6, and you've all read that there, where it says that in the days just before the flood, every 
every man did that which was evil only. His thoughts were evil only. In other words, the world could get so bad that there are only eight people. Now, I don't believe eight people, but in, in our day and age. But in the day of Noah, only eight people survived from the pre-flood world. God obliterated the entire rest. Why? Because they only did evil. The whole world had lost it. Percentage-wise, we could get to that same situation, and it seems like we're rapidly approaching that. I don't think we'll get down to eight. It'll probably be millions of true believers, maybe even tens of millions of true believers at the time of the rapture. But how many people lived in the world at the time of the flood? Probably a fraction of what lives here today. I mean, there are 5.55 billion people estimated population in the world today. You know, was there 100 million living at the time of the flood? We, we don't know. But uh, conditions can get worse. And then lastly, he said, the years of my sojourning have been unpleasant. It's encouraging words, Jacob. <laughs> Life's just been a big drag, huh? Well, Jacob was weary of life. He was 130. Remember what he had been through. Just, let's just go back through the previous 25 years of his life up to this moment. His daughter Dinah had been raped by a Canaanite prince. Then two of his brothers go and murdered the population of the town, including that prince. Okay? So it says that his name was odious in the land of Canaan. Then his wife Rachel dies, giving childbirth to her second son, in childbirth to her second son, and, and you know, part of Jacob died with his beloved Rachel. And then uh, 17, not even 17, just a few years later, his, his favorite son is abducted and for all he knew, the, the child was dead and gone, eaten up by wild animals. And then his son Judah goes off and marries a Canaanitess, has sons, and two of those sons are killed by God because of their wickedness. And then Leah dies. And now a big famine hits the land. I mean, you know, it's a real exciting 25 years. You know. It's kind of like Job, except for Job, it all happened in you know, 25 days or whatever, just a short period of time. Same kind of phenomenon. And so he stands before Pharaoh and says, I'm just really tired of this life. And, you know, Pharaoh may not have understood, but Jacob understood. I mean, stressful events and stressful relationships had worn Jacob down. And even his statement that we read, remember, in the 46th chapter after he'd met Joseph, he said, now let me die since I've seen your face. The only good thing left in life has happened to me. Now let me go. I want to go be with the Lord. He's like the heart, the deer, panning after the water brook. So Jacob was panning for that time to go and see his God. Well, let me wind it up here today with Romans chapter 8, Romans 8, 18. I, by the way, I don't think Jacob was really complaining. I think he was just making a, fa a statement of fact. I'm just plain tired of it. And, and I'm, I'm really ready to go on. And, you know, he was weary of the emotional and the spiritual battles. And what the scripture teaches us is that the whole world is weary of it. Romans 8, 18. For I consider that the sufferings of this present age are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Now that's real uplifting. Because no matter how bad it might seem here, what we have to come to is fabulous in comparison. 
For the anxious longing of the creation waits eagerly for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not of its own will, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself also will be set free from its slavery to corruption into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth together until now. And not only this, but also we ourselves, having the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, waiting eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in hope we have been saved. But hope that is seen is not hope. For why does one hope for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, with perseverance we wait eagerly for it. Now this is not an excuse for us to be mopers and groaners and, you know, just kind of wet blankets all over the place. But it helps us to see that if we are weary, we're simply part of, of what is true about the whole creation. It's weary of the impact of Satan and his curse on this world. And, and whatever that means that the whole creation groans, and whatever it means when it's all waiting for the expression of the sons of God being taken up into glory, it certainly implies that we're not alone if we're weary and tired of it. But in the midst of our weariness and tiredness, we go on in the glory and the faith of God and in His strength to do whatever we need to do next. I mean, if He chooses to leave us here for another year or another 10 years or another 50 years, we need to go on in the strength and the glory of God and, and you know, be a blessing to all of those around us. So I think the important point is to know that if you feel weary and you feel tired and you feel like you want to go to heaven, that's fine, that's scriptural. But at the same time, we don't just go around like a wet blanket on top of everybody, uh, groaning about it all. We, we need to reveal the joy of the Lord as long as He leaves us here and be a blessing to all of those around us.